rumor has it that on Thursday, December 9th, 1965, two little boys were playing in a field when they were startled by a noise coming from the sky. They were cold from the December air, and they turned their rosy-cheeked faces upwards and saw an object moving through the sky. This thing passed overhead a few hundred feet above them, what they described as a gray or brown, smooth, rounded shape. To these boys, and to others, it looked like a giant acorn. Flames trailed behind it, orange, yellow, and green flames. Their eyes followed it as it moved through the sky, passing them, then continuing on, until it disappeared out of their line of sight. That happened in Norville, Pennsylvania. The object was seen at varying points along its journey, passing through the Northern Hemisphere, through Canada, into North America, into Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, before it found its final resting place in western Pennsylvania. It crashed in the woods in an area known as Hexburg, about 30 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. For over 50 years, people have attempted to identify this mysterious object that was hauled away by the military within a few hours after it landed. The government said it was a meteor. Others claimed it was a spy satellite. There are also legends of a time-traveling device that found its way to rural Pennsylvania all the way from Germany. But some witnesses believe what landed in the woods in Kecksburg was an alien spaceship. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome Welcome to to Twisted Philly. Philly. going to wise up and realize that these saucer-shaped objects they're seeing are peace-living people from other planets and not swamp gases. Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. The number of times I've had listeners, friends, even my fiancé tell me, you need to cover the story of Kecksburg. I thought, what is it with Kecksburg? Until I started researching this episode, I'd never heard about the acorn-shaped object that landed in a village in Mount Pleasant Township, Pennsylvania, called Kecksburg. I knew about UFO sightings in Pennsylvania. I'd heard about the spike in sightings, especially in western Pennsylvania, in the 70s and 80s. But Kecksburg? Nope, it didn't ring a bell. Late in the afternoon on Thursday, December 9th, back in 1965, People from Michigan and Indiana reported seeing a streak of light and fire in the sky. As this object moved, it supposedly created sonic booms, and pieces of flaming metal fell to the ground. This thing crossed into Ohio, then Pennsylvania, where, according to some witnesses, it slowed down. How much did you hear about that so-called meteorite that came down by Kicksburg? You know it isn't every meteorite that decides to take a trip around the country before it comes down. That meteorite was first sighted over Indiana and Erie before it decided to head east. What made this fiery path through the sky? Well, according to some local residents, and by some, I mean most people local to Kecksburg on that day in 1965, an object was seen moving through the sky, moving directionally with intent. The object landed, or crashed, depending on who you talk to, in a sparsely populated wooded area of Mount Pleasant Township in western Pennsylvania called Kecksburg. One eyewitness in particular was a volunteer fireman named James Romanski. Now, he was on the scene soon after the object landed. He and other volunteer firemen from the area had been dispatched to the woods because of multiple calls to local police and radio stations. They had no idea what people had seen, only that something looked like it crashed or landed in the Kecksburg woods. By the time James caught up with his fellow volunteer firemen, he claimed that what he saw that afternoon was a giant acorn-shaped object. They described it as being perhaps 10 to 12 feet long and almost that large around. James claimed it was big enough for a grown man to stand up inside if it was balanced on its end. And I say balanced because that shape was described like an upside-down acorn, with the little hat part of the acorn at the bottom 
and the rounded bell part on the top. The bottom of the object had what some people called hieroglyphics etched into the metal. Others called them runes, but regardless of what they were called, witnesses saw symbols on this object. It wasn't any language or form of writing that was at all familiar to humans. And it wasn't just volunteer firemen who claimed to have seen this object in the sky or seen it in the woods. There were local farmers, business people, homemakers, and children. For miles and miles in western Pennsylvania, residents saw this object head into our state, basically make a right turn east of Pittsburgh, and land in the woods. Local radio and TV stations were flooded with phone calls. The police station was overwhelmed with calls, too. It seemed as if everyone who saw or heard about this mysterious giant acorn wanted to report what they saw. That is until the state police and the military showed up, which happened fairly soon after the object crashed. The military established a perimeter. They sealed off the woods in Kecksburg surrounding the crash site. Everyone was pushed back. No one was allowed to see what landed near their homes. According to some witnesses, men showed up in protective suits to test the area. Police, military, caution tape. It sounds like something out of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, or E.T. Later that night, many residents claimed they saw military personnel leave with something the size of a small car under a tarp on a flatbed truck. For weeks, the area was protected. What we'd probably call men in black today allegedly showed up for further investigation and even hounded witnesses, about which we'll hear a little more later. The day after the Kecksburg incident, newspapers from all over the country reported the strange object that was seen over the Northern Hemisphere in Canada and so many states in the U.S. The Tampa Tribune reported fires in the woods, The Orlando Sentinel mentioned Army engineers on the scene the day before. Tennessee, Iowa, Oklahoma, Indiana, even New Mexico newspapers. Okay, well, New Mexico had its own alien issue, so maybe that newspaper wasn't so surprising. But there were so many different witness statements, news reports, letters to the editor in local papers in Pennsylvania and in other parts of the country. The news of the incident in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania spread like wildfire. Thousands of mysterious objects are sighted in the sky each year by persons of authority and complete reliability. Pictures have been taken of these UFOs, but rather than being presented to the public, they are labeled top secret. Now, over 50 years later, the mystery of Kecksburg is still very much alive in the minds of folks who have even the slightest interest in UFOs. This story has been featured on the History Channel, Unsolved Mysteries, even the Sci-Fi Channel, who were a part of a federal lawsuit brought against NASA in 2003 when the network requested access to documents the government was keeping about Kecksburg. I shit you not, the Sci-Fi Channel, in partnership with a number of other people, some rather prominently placed, sued NASA because of this giant acorn that landed in the woods in rural Pennsylvania. How much did you hear about that so-called meteorite that came down in Kecksburg? You know, it isn't just every meteorite that decides to take a trip around the country before it comes down. Kecksburg is the East Coast's version of Roswell, right here in PA. For this episode, I knew I had to get some folks to help me tell this story because there are so many theories, so many twists and turns. So in this episode, I'm first joined by writer, editor, and communications consultant Bob Gaddy, who on December 9th, back in 1965, was a young reporter working for the Greensburg Tribune Review when his editor told him, Bob, I've got the story of the century for you, and sent him out to the tiny town of Kecksburg to cover the story of the UFO. Bob's got a lot more accomplishments under his belt than being one of the first reporters on the scene in Kecksburg. He spent years as a reporter, a writer, bureau chiefs, and eventually worked in Washington, D.C. as a press secretary and then chief of staff for former Republican Congressman Ed Forsyth and then Democratic Congressman Jim Florio, who later became governor of New Jersey. Yep, Bob worked for leaders of both parties. Today, he's semi-retired, living in the Carolinas, where he still writes. You can find his website at www.notfakenews.biz. He plays softball and volunteers as a communications director for a local political committee in his community. Please welcome Bob Gaddy to Twisted Philly. Bob, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. 
I know it may have been a little surprising when a strange name popped up in your email asking if you'd be interested in talking with me about the Kecksburg incident, which happened so long ago. And I really appreciate you making time for me. All these 52 years since then, I mean, every once in a while, it keeps coming out of the woodwork. It's a story that will not let go. Why do you think that's the case? And I'll tell you, I ask that question because, as you said, it's 52 years later, and I have received so many requests from folks who listen to my show asking me to talk about the Kecksburg UFO. What do you think keeps it in the public eye? Well, I think it's a couple things. First of all, Stan Gordon has tenaciously kept this story alive. He's been incredible, and he just won't let it go, and, and he's done all kinds of stuff. And he's managed to get some folks, uh, investigators and people working with him to chase after the DOD and use Freedom of Information Act to get documents and all kinds of stuff. I don't know what Stan does for a living, but he should have been an investigative reporter because he's, he's just really done a superb job of keeping this thing alive and trying to find the truth. The second thing is secrecy. The worst thing that a government can do, and I've learned this over the years from covering Watergate and everything else that's occurred in the meantime, related in some way, having worked on Capitol Hill, the worst thing that a a government can do is try to keep something secret. We live in a free country, and we want to know what what happened here. You know, now when the DOD comes out and says, oh, nothing really happened at, at that time, well, nobody believes that because there were too many witnesses that saw something. Hell, when I went there on the scene uh, that night after I was told by my editor that I had the story of the century, as a young reporter, I figured I was being, I was being sent on what I would call the rookie reporter's version of a sniper. I thought, that's what he's doing, you know, he's jerking my chain. But he said, no, 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 this is serious. It's, it could be a big story. you got to get out there. When I got there, I was shocked. There were all these military with guns uh, lined up around this field. I got out of my car. Uh, and there were a lot of bystanders out there already uh, standing around trying to watch to see what was going on. And when I got there and saw all these military, I went up to uh, one of them and said, what the hell's going on? And and he said, nothing. And I said, nothing? Why are you guys here? I didn't know you guys just would come out and stand around an empty field, you know, if nothing was happening. And uh, he said, well, no, there was a call saying that there was something came down over there, but no, nothing did. I said, okay, well, I'm going to walk back and check it out. He said, no, 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 you can't go back there. I said, why not? He said, well, I just said you couldn't go back there. And I said, well, again, why not? If if there's nothing there, what's the problem? He said, I was told no one could go back there. I, I said, well, okay, what, what happens if I do? He said, you'll get arrested. I said, oh, I'm going to get arrested for for checking out something that doesn't exist. That's really interesting. <laughs> I thought, well, if I get arrested, it'll make a really, really good story or... I'm going to miss my deadline. So, my, you know, quickly going through my head was, what are the consequences if I get arrested? I won't be able to file my story, and I'll get fired. And so I, I, I figured, well, I better come up with another way to get the story. So I started, started walking around, talking to people, asking them what they saw. And I got a bunch of quotes from people saying that they had seen this object come down through the night sky One person said that it broke through a tree and it seemed to be directed. It didn't just fall. It didn't just shoot down in a straight line, but it seemed to be maneuvered and softly landed. And then somebody else said, well, they had a flatbed trailer, and we all stood around waiting to see if that trailer truck came out. I stood around waiting, waiting, waiting. I didn't see it. I was getting past my deadline. There was a house nearby. I ran to the house. Turned out that it was the home of the fire, the Kecksburg fire chief. I asked him if I could use his phone. He said, yes. I said, what do you know about this? He said, oh, well, they said there's something that came down back there, but nobody has really been able to prove anything, and I don't think there's anything there. I think this is just all much ado about nothing. So I called in my story. 
using his phone in his house. Then I went back to the newsroom. They had already written a story based on what I told them. And then the next day, uh, when I went back, they asked me to make calls to see what I could find out. And uh, so I called around to the state police, to the local police, to the military. I can't recall who I spoke with in the military or who I called. The bottom line is that everybody to a person said nothing happened. It was just somebody must have seen, you know, some flashes in the sky, but it wasn't really anything. And uh, so I reported that. And and then what happened to me was I had been working on getting a new job with United Press International. And right at that time, they called me and asked me if I would take a position in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and working at the State House. And so I left. I mean, it was like within a week. Uh, I left and, and took that job at UPI in, in Harrisburg. So I dropped the story. So that's kind of the extent of it for me. You heard Bob talk about a gentleman named Stan Gordon. Now, Stan was a young man when the incident in Kecksburg occurred. And since that time, he's been fascinated with and quite frequently investigates what are considered to be UFO sightings. And Bob believes that Stan Gordon's documentary has done a lot to perpetuate the fascination with the incident in Kecksburg. Bob and I talked for about an hour. We talked so much about his career after joining United Press International. He became bureau chief with UPI at multiple locations, including North Jersey. So you can imagine the type of cases he reported on in that role. He had an opportunity to be bureau chief in New York, but that position would have led to international positions, and it wasn't the right time for his family to take on such a huge relocation. So that's when he went to Washington. I was really hoping to share more of our conversation with you, but I ran into a few audio issues. Bob was such a great guy to talk with that I'd like to have him back on the show to focus on his career in Pennsylvania and beyond. You'll be hearing from Bob again. In the meantime, you can read his blog posts on his website at www.notfakenews.biz. For the second half of this episode, the other person I absolutely had to have on Twisted Philly is Chris Cogswell co-host of the Mad Scientist podcast. Chris and I talk about all the theories around Kecksburg, why he thinks it's still such a fascination for people, whether or not this could have been a Russian or American spy satellite that crashed in the woods, what makes for a good UFO story. And by good UFO story, I mean something that's possibly other, as in, could this really be something other than what we know exists today? We discuss even more witness accounts, and we go down a few rabbit holes, including talking about something called Deglaka. And if you have no idea what that is, don't worry. I didn't either when my Dark Myths buddies told me to watch out for it. I thought they were making fun of me. But Chris and I will explain that, too. Oh, and the federal lawsuit brought against NASA in 2003 over little old Kecksburg. Yep, Chris and I talk about that. One of the reasons I absolutely had to have Chris join me on this particular episode is because he was recently appointed the director of research at MUFON, the mutual UFO network founded in 1969. MUFON's mission is to provide the world with an unbiased, scientific-based organization which investigates and promotes research about UFO phenomenon. Please welcome Chris Cogswell, co-host of the Mad Scientist podcast to Twisted Philly. I would like to welcome a very special guest and one of my Dark Myths pod brothers to Twisted Philly, because with me is Chris Cogswell, the host of the Mad Scientist. Chris, welcome, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me. So excited to finally be coming on your show. I'm so excited to have you on the show. So thank you for saying yes. Nope. Chris and I are going to be talking UFOs tonight or possible UFOs. Is it? Is it something else? But before we get into that, Chris... Can you tell listeners about your show, The Mad Scientist Podcast, in case they aren't familiar with it? Absolutely. So my show is basically, uh, it's part of Dark Myths, and it's a show that kind of brings together both the spooky and the scientific. So we look at cases of, you know, weirdness throughout history. So alchemy and witchcraft and UFOs and ghosts and all that kind of good stuff. 
but we look at it through the lens of science, basically. You know, what is the science that we have available to us today? Tell us about that time period, about the event itself, and then also getting into kind of the philosophy of science. So I'm one half of the Mad Scientist podcast. I have a co-host, Marie Mayhew. We, we just kind of try to, you know, go through these cases and provide some, a little bit of education, but a lot of interesting weirdness. I think that's what I like the most about the show and listening to you and Marie is that there's an opportunity for both of those perspectives, like something that's strange and unusual and being open to the idea of something mystical. And at the same time, looking at it through that lens of science, as you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the weird things that, you know, over time, uh, magic and myth always ends up kind of getting eaten by science almost. And we're in an age now where almost the opposite is happening. Science is kind of spitting out our myth and legend, right? We have UFOs and we have teleportation and all these other weird things that are happening. And science is kind of used as a way to explain those things. And so idea, I guess, of the show is that I'm kind of, I guess, the trained scientific voice. And Marie is sort of the hard scrabble reporter. And we kind of go at it and you know try to give our own... Try to give our own perspectives on on topics and stuff. So it's a lot of fun. I, I enjoy doing. I love I love doing the show. So we're pretty we're pretty excited for what we have coming up this season. As a listener, I'd say it's a lot of fun too. Where can people find you? Where can they listen to the show? Where can they find you and Marie on social media? Yep. So you can uh, find the show through darkmyths.org. You can also find us on Audioboom, basically everywhere podcasts are found. So it's the Mad Scientist podcast, and our logo is really hard to miss. It's the one with the giant orange jack-o'-lantern. You can also find us on the madscientistpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at madscientistpod, and through that you can kind of find Marie and our personal accounts and everything else. So you search Mad Scientist and you'll see a jack-o'-lantern. It's probably our show. Yeah, your logo is awesome. I'm just Thank gonna, you. Your logo is so, so cool. It's like oh. the seriously before I even I made the logo before I made the podcast. <laughs> like I had I had this idea of like a jack o' lantern face, and then I actually got a good friend of the show, Carrie Shaheen, who's a Staten Island artist from where I'm from. I was just like, hey, can you do you want to do this for us? And she made it, and it was amazing. I keep buying art from her, and my wife is like, stop it, please. We don't have any money. It is amazing. No, I need more logos. (laughs) It was the logo before I got involved in Dark Myths. It was your show logo that got me to start listening to it. Because I'm like, this show has to be effing crazy. This is crazy. This logo is amazing. Good stuff. I'm happy to hear that. It worked for one person at least. So that's good. (laughs) (laughs) We got one. Hey, so I asked Chris to join me tonight. You are here tonight to talk about Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. And an object that landed in the woods 30 miles southeast of Pittsburgh on the western side of the state, and back on December 9th, 1965, something landed in the woods. And so that's what Chris and I are going to be talking about tonight. Chris, when I reached out to you and said, hey, man, you want to come talk to me about Krexburg, what do you already know? Probably everything based on what you do for a living. So we should probably get into that at some point. But what are your thoughts about what may or may not have landed in the woods outside of Pittsburgh? This case is super famous, actually, in terms of UFO lore. The Kecksburg incident is like, it's one of almost the, def- it's, it's the East Coast's Roswell, is the way it's often described. You know, so just from being interested in the subject, I knew quite a bit about it. What I, what I knew initially was, uh, I think the first time I read about the case was, as a kid, probably, I actually had a book that, like, is the source of all of my weird knowledge and and interests and stuff. It's this book made by Reader's Digest called Mysteries of the Unexplained. This book had a whole, like, a page-long thing about the Kecksburg incident. And it talked about, you know, this acorn-shaped craft crash-landed in the woods, and a bunch of people saw it, but the government came and, you know, cordoned off the area and took everyone's film and sent the men in black out after uh, witnesses and stuff. And what makes this one so fascinating, I think, is that the shape of the craft and what's supposed to be on the outer surface of this craft is very, not not necessarily notable, but it's very intriguing. And it's intriguing because it has a lot of links to other, you know, mythological kind of ideas that we right. have out there in the UFO field. So for me, it's kind of a really great test case for a lot of the ideas that we talk about a lot of the kind of ideas for research that I think would be useful in this field of UFO studies. It's certainly a very unusual and interesting shape. So I talk a little bit before the interview about 
the idea that what landed is described as something that was like an enormous acorn. And there was one particular eyewitness who's been quoted in in a lot of the research that I read through. He was a volunteer fireman at the time named Jim Romansky. And I don't know if you've seen any of the conversations he's had in interviews, but his comments are that this thing looked like it was made from liquid metal. There were no seams. There were no rivets. There was nothing where you would see one piece was attached to another piece. It was a smooth, massive acorn-like shape that was at least 10 to 12 feet in height or length, depending on how you were looking at it, and probably close to 8 or 10 feet in width, something that he described as an object that a grown man could stand up if they were able to get inside. Mm -hmm. This idea of liquid metal is actually a really common one in UFO lore. There's a very clear history to UFO sightings. And so in the 50s, you had cases where people were seeing UFOs that looked like, you know, two tin pie things that were placed on top of each other. You know, everyone saw this, basically, not everyone, but this description of the craft and of the occupants sometimes was pretty, was pretty averaged out, I'd say. And then in the 60s, you start seeing craft that are described more as these uh, seamless objects, you know, these spheres or ovals or eggs even. And then in the modern day, we talk about things like orbs, right? And so some people have made the claim that this is a, this is proof of a kind of sociological link or explanation for the UFO question. But one interesting thing that comes up in these cases that seem to have a lot of, you know, meat on them is this description of liquid metal, this, uh, a craft that seems to have not, not only liquid metal, but memory metal as well is something that's often brought up. So for instance, in the case of Roswell, they talk about finding uh, the remnants of the ship and what appeared to be foil, like almost like aluminum foil that we would think of today. But when you moved it or touched it or something, it would, it would reshape itself. And so the description of the Kecksburg, you know, the, the bell or the acorn, whatever you want to call it as having this sort of seamless appearance on the outside is, is interesting. It's super interesting that it kind of corresponds to what we think we know about UFOs. One of the things that I read when I was doing some research is that Kecksburg may have been the landing spot for this object, but it was seen, or people at least believe this was the same object. It was seen passing over Canada into Michigan, making a right turn and then starting to head east across other states through Indiana, eventually into Ohio, then changing course again. And of course, what the government claimed it was, at least at the time, was that it's a meteor. And I don't know that a meteor would actually, at least according to eyewitness testimony, behave in a directional way like that. Yeah, so it's it's interesting, actually. We have a list of, there's sort of a go-to, not, not really a go-to list, I guess, but when you ask someone who's really interested in this subject, you know, well, what makes a good UFO case? I think one of the first things that's always said is non-ballistic motion, right? This idea of motion that, like you said, you know, turning and changing direction quickly and not just in free fall, but something that seems to be under some kind of directional control, right? There has to be some kind of outside force or thrusters or whatever it is moving this object about. The actual, the fact that it was observed, um, yeah, you're you're totally right. It was observed all the way up in Canada. It was observed in Detroit. Um, and it was basically observed all the way through, all the way to Pennsylvania. What makes that so interesting is that that is both what makes this case a strong one from the field of UFO proponents but also what those who want to kind of disprove this case use to say, well, here we have evidence that the trajectory is wrong or the orbit is wrong or things like that. So, for instance, there are articles in in various both amateur astronomy and serious academic astronomy journals that talk about, well, did this thing actually turn right or did it move? What was its actual trajectory? And therefore, where did it come from or where was it headed? There are some uh, older reports that claim that this thing was actually moving away from Pennsylvania, that it was actually moving um, the other way over Detroit, basically. That idea has kind of been slowly pulled away at at over time. Their methods of measurement were a little bit off, and with the math we're talking about, a small error in measurement can mean a huge difference. But it's still quite interesting that there is this outside evidence like this, too, the fact that not just it wasn't just one person in a field who saw a crashed landing or something. Right. This was reported by dozens of people, if not, you know, all the way up to 100. 
that also adds credence to this case and it, it, it gives it more, uh, again, more believability if that's what we want to call it, you know? Yeah, there were at least dozens, as you said, the night that it entered Pennsylvania and then eventually landed in the woods. And there were calls swarming the local radio station. Like they could not keep up with the volume of phone calls. The local police department couldn't keep up with the volume of phone calls. There were people that saw this. There were children, there were adults that saw this from towns everywhere between. And there's actually a gentleman I spoke to last week for tonight, for today's episode. His name is Bob Gaddy. He was a very young reporter back in 1965 who worked for the local paper. His editor sent him out and said, this is the story of the century, which at the time he probably thought my entire career will be built on this. He drove out to the crash site. And by the time he got there, Pennsylvania State Police were on the scene and the military were on the scene. He made a request. Hey, my editor sent me here. And, you know, it's one of those tiny, tiny little towns where everybody knows everybody. So if you show up, you're going to know the police. They're going to know you. And he said, you know, I need to get down there. I need to see what this is. I've been asked to write a story on it. And the police wouldn't let him in. So he was right at the edge of the woods. And then he asked, OK, well, then what is it? Can you tell me what it looks like? Can you give me any information? And the police said, oh, there's nothing there. And so, of course, he said, well, great. If there's nothing there, then there's no reason why you won't let me into the woods to see it. <laughs> and... They said, no, man, we can't we can't let you do that. And he said, well, what if I don't listen to you? What if I just walk in anyway? And they said, well, then we're going to arrest you. Yeah. It was surprising to me how quickly the military got on site. There were some reports that the military was there within 20 to 30 minutes of this thing landing. And very quickly, they and the state police took over. And so I'm, I'm curious how that would have happened, because when I think about where Cracksburg is, you know, it's at least 30 miles southwest of Pittsburgh. There are military bases there. There's an Air Force base in Ohio, not far over the border from Pennsylvania. But they got there awfully fast. This actually, that story corresponds with another similar story of uh, John Murphy. Now, he was a reporter at the time for uh, WHJB. It's a local radio station. And so basically, he he also went on the scene and tried to get, he, he grabbed some photos, supposedly, before the authorities had actually gotten there. And he's one of the main sources for the involvement of the men in black, supposedly, who came and, you know, took his film and told him not to talk about the case. And, and you know, he ended up supposedly dying of a mysterious, a mysterious hit and run um, when he was away on vacation. The, here's the thing with a lot of these cases, right? Like the farther away in time that a case occurs, the more unreliable everyone's memory gets, right? I mean, that's just the way that people are. And on top of that, a lot, I guess, of the institutional knowledge that may have existed back then for, you know, oh, well, you know, back in the back in the mid 60s, late 60s, uh, the military had this sort of, you know, we had this kind of radar over the area. So if we saw something coming in, we would know that it had landed, right? Like that kind of knowledge might be going away over time as these cases get older and older. I wonder, so one of the arguments is that this thing was seen in Detroit, it was seen over Canada, and so we knew that it was coming, right? It was observed in Detroit uh, around 4.44 p.m. So it was seen in Detroit, it's traveling over to Pennsylvania. You got a little bit of time there to kind of get someone potentially on the ground, but like you said, to get there at this, you know, this small town to get there right where it landed, that's pretty, that's pretty, that's a pretty big coincidence. Right. Like there right? weren't easy highways to get into the right. woods. Right. <laughs> in, in right. Rural, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's, it's, inter it's an interesting, so there's actually been some recent kind of tussling, I guess, or not super recent, but relatively recent, you know, legal tussling between private investigators and researchers who are interested in this case and NASA because uh, NASA claims that all the files and all the information that they have from this crashed object are lost. Now that's interesting because it means that there actually was something there potentially, or at least something that would make this group, you know, go out and, and do investigation itself. Well, there was a federal lawsuit. I think that yes. maybe this is what you're talking about. So there was a federal lawsuit, which I found absolutely fascinating, filed in 2003. Yep. between the Sci-Fi Channel and an investigative reporter they hired from New York, a woman by the name of Leslie Keene, and President Clinton's former chief of staff, John Podesta, who was a member of the Coalition for Freedom of Information. They jointly filed a 
federal lawsuit against NASA. And it took four years. But eventually in 2007, the federal government agreed with the group bringing this lawsuit against NASA and forced NASA to release whatever files they had. It took about two years with government oversight for NASA to finally share what they had compiled with this investigative journalist, Leslie Keene. And then the results of everything that she had access to that she read was that it really wasn't anything very eye-opening or earth-shattering. Yeah, basically, basically, uh, NASA came back with this analysis that said, well, we think it might have been a piece of a, you know, piece of a satellite or something. And then they said, but actually, we have no data to prove that. Well, great. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I can say, yeah, well, we can all, you know, use our alphabet soup to to come out here with with uh, nice official titles and say whatever the hell we want. But without any proof, it's useless. Right. So. Right. So one of my favorite parts about all of these cases from history is kind of the, I guess, the building up and layering of the conspiracy almost. I'm definitely what I would consider to be a, I would say that I'm a skeptical believer. I'm not not really a debunker. I don't really want to see all this stuff torn down, but I definitely don't like when a case is clearly fabricated. And that's what makes these Kecksburg, this Kecksburg case so fascinating is that there really is a lot here. Right. There's a lot here for a someone with an open mind to really think and say, well, something this seems like something weird happened in this, you know, this small town. Right. But so this event occurred a year before Mothman first appeared in in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. And they're pretty close to each other. Oh, I'm I'm a total Mothman believer. I'm a total Mothman believer. So. Some people have have kind of put the two together and said, you know, oh, well, you know, hey, maybe this is the the ship that Mothman fell in on. Then you have people who would would argue that this is a part of a larger conspiracy. This is, you know, time traveling Nazis or even time traveling Earthlings or or just Earthlings, I guess. (laughs) Deglaka! My favorite, my favorite thing, Deglaka. All right, um, so we have to tell the listeners, when I reached out to Chris, I was talking to Chris and some of the other Dark Myth brethren, and at first I thought they were teasing me because they said, oh, wait till you find the time-traveling Nazi bell. You know, I thought you guys were kind of pulling my leg at first. Well, then I found it. So we should probably let folks know what we're talking about. Deglaka is basically a word for bell. Apparently, some people believe that the Nazis were working on this super weapon that actually may have had the power to enable time travel. It was something that had an electromagnetic propulsion system. And when you think about something that's shaped like a bell, like it probably wouldn't be able to fly for shit if it was an aircraft of any kind because it has so much girth around the middle, right? It's not aerodynamic at all. I don't know. They People believe that the Nazis were trying to create a, tri- a time travel device. In a remote valley just outside Lovikovitz, Poland, stands a strange circular structure known as the Henge. They say the Henge was used to test a new highly advanced machine known as Deglaka or the Bell. Surviving sketches depict the Bell as having a ceramic covering and dimensions measuring 10 feet high and 5 feet in diameter. According to some ancient astronaut theorists, the Bell may have been a time machine. There is this myth out there that I I guess, well, I guess I can kind of see why we put so much mythology on the Nazis because they were really like, if you think back, like, you know, they were the last big, like, bad guys that we, you know, we all, like, everyone in America agreed the Nazis were bad, right? right? They were the last big bad guys that we all fought together. And so I think it's really easy to put on them this idea of almost like, you know, they, they committed such enormous atrocities that it's also easy to think of them as being, you know, astounding or just so out of so out of the ordinary in other ways as well. And one of the ways that we think of them as being so out of the ordinary is in technology and military weaponry. For some reason, like we just have this idea that the Nazis must have had these super weapons, even though they totally got their butts kicked. I don't know. It's sort of the the equivalent of like, you know, you get into a playground fight with a kid and he's like, yeah, but wait till you see my big brother. Yeah. You know, right? it's like, oh, well, he, where was he? I beat, you know, I beat you up, man. This general idea is that the Nazis had developed a method to either travel through time or create a basically a UFO. And they called it Deglaka the Bell, which was its code name. Any information about this bell started in 
like the year 2000. It came from a book that was written in Poland around 2000 that, that was about this idea that the Nazis were developing uh, anti-gravity technology and that this anti-gravity technology also accidentally pushed them into the future. And so when this event occurred that it pushed them into the future or through a wormhole or something, they left occupied Poland, which I think I think it was either in Poland or maybe in the Czech Republic where they had this thing um, that they were supposedly testing on it. And they punch through time and space and then they come back out in right near Pittsburgh. <laughs> in you 1965. Know, in 1965, right. 20 plus years later. So it's, it's a fascinating piece of mythology. Like with most stuff on ancient aliens, there's just no evidence for it. Right. Unfortunately, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a yeah, it's a tough sell, but I, I really like it. The reason I liked Aglaka so much, I think, is because once they introduced, like that was Ancient Aliens jumping the shark moment. If they hadn't already <laughs> jumped multiple sharks, the introduction of Deglaka, it was like every episode since then, you know, the minute you see something even remotely bell-shaped, it's like, but what if it has a link to history's other mysterious bell? <laughs> and you're like, oh, come on, man. Not to Glocka again. You know, it's so self-referential that it, God, it makes me so mad. That's why I thought you guys were, you know, having a little fun at my expense when, when it first came no. up in our chat. And I'm like, shit, they weren't kidding. No, oh it's, God. there's so much to it. And this, and it all comes, like, the beauty of a lot of these conspiracy theories is they all, they all end up coming back around to each other, right? So... Okay, we think the Nazis had these UFOs, and so therefore, well, where have the Nazis been all this time? Well, they must have been on the hollow moon, or they're in the hollow earth, right? Or they're there oh in a, a lost continent somewhere. They're on Atlantis. It all ends up getting all together. So, and the thing that's kind of interesting to me is part of the argument for this is that, that the craft had, supposedly when it landed, those who witnessed it said that the craft had almost hieroglyphics on the side. Yes. And so the argument was these were ruins, basically, that uh, the Nazis believed in all kinds of weird occult kind of stuff in some ways. And so. Oh, so now we have Druid Nazis. Right. And so now. We, right. Exactly. Now we have Druid Nazis that were using these runes to provide real energy to the craft. It's oh, it's all very, very tiring. But, you know, it's like it's such a silly it's such a silly thing. The ironic thing about all of this is years later in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, a similar object was witnessed by a number of people that looked like the bell. Is it possible that the Nazis perfected these things? Or is it possible that the aliens looked like Nazis in uniforms? How bizarre would that be? Well, I know there's an organization of which you are a part of that shared some theories just a few years ago. Would you take a minute and talk a little bit about MUFON and what you do there, what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So I am the director of research for MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. And what MUFON is, we're a nonprofit organization that is present in, uh, we have members all around the world, which is really cool. And we have People who go out, when you make a, when, when someone claims that they've seen a UFO, they can report it to us through our database. And once they make a report, we actually will send out investigators to go look at interview witnesses and look for evidence and basically provide analysis of the case itself. MUFON's been doing that for a long time now, you know, 40 plus years. And that's basically what our general role is in this field. My role at MUFON as director of research is to try and sort of cut through all of the data and all of the stories and all these ideas and try to find something. In my mind, what I'm trying to do is find something scientifically valid and sound to present to the public and say, well, this is something of interest. This is something that we can't really dispute as being at the very least interesting, right? Worthy of investigation. And so that's kind of what I do. Um, we're looking at a whole bunch of different avenues for this kind of analysis and research. But yeah, MUFON has been the name in UFO research for, you know, since it's since its founding. We're really trying to bring serious science and serious rigor and critique to uh, MUFON and to the UFO field in general. Well, I think that's evident in the theory that was put forth in 2015 by John Ventry that what was found and because of how it looked and similarity in shape was that possibly it was a GE Mark II reentry vehicle from 
the 60s that happened to land in rural Pittsburgh, that there was a more scientific possibility of what this object could have been. There's a number of different theories of this sort out there. Another one is the idea that this is a, a Russian uh, Russian Cosmos 96. The presence of the military there right away, the fact that NASA even had data on this case, all of that is indicative that something actually occurred there. It would make sense that the government would want to collect space debris or, or re-entry uh, vehicles or something like that from space if we thought it was either from us or from, you know, the enemies of America at the time. So to me, that theory is, is quite sensible. Only problem or the only challenges to that that I see is that there isn't a lot of, right, so where did that re-entry vehicle come from? All of that suggests, uh, again, with any of these things, we can start building up other conspiracies on top of conspiracies, right? I have not personally looked at the uh, MUFON report yet of the case, but I, I definitely will now and take a look at it. I'm fascinated to see what the, uh, what the analysis actually was done. I'm interested to see what that was. When I first discovered this case, the story about an object landing in rural Pennsylvania outside of Pittsburgh, one of my first curiosities was it seems like it's so small and random compared to something like Roswell. And how has this story stayed alive for 50 years? And I think to your point, it's the Roswell of the East Coast. Maybe we don't have something as big as Roswell, but certainly what happened between 2002 and 2009 with the federal lawsuit against NASA to get those documents and see what NASA was keeping about this event, I think that's probably had a lot to do with keeping this story alive and, and keeping those conspiracy theories coming. Yeah, well, it's it's again, it's one of the few, you know, so I, I think I, I find value in uh, witness reports, regardless of whether or not they had physical evidence attached to them, right? I mean, there's something, if, if a thousand people in a year say, I had a UFO experience, well, that's that's interesting, right? That's at least something worth looking into. And we have far more than that a year. In terms of this case, why I think, so I agree with you. I think that the, the continued court cases and things are what kind of keeps it in the public imagination. The other thing is that this is a case that has, again, this case had, uh, had, evidence, had trace evidence. It had, you know, burned up uh, tree lines and presence of the military at the scene. And it had people from across the country of, you know, where this thing was flying, calling in and reporting, seeing something in the sky. This is a case like, like a lot of the big cases that end up being kind of embedded in our consciousness. This case has so many of the indicators of a truly extraordinary event I don't think it will ever fall out of kind of fashion in the UFO community. And in, and, you know, and in the larger consciousness of, I don't know, of weird stories, I guess. Well, I like weird shit. So. <laughs> <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> right, right. Obviously, yeah. we both do based on our podcast. Seriously. Chris, I can't thank you enough for joining me to talk about the object. I'm not going to call it a UFO because we don't definitively know what it is. <laughs> But I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge and your thoughts. And I'm so excited about your opportunity at MUFON. I just think that sounds like one of the coolest jobs ever. Obviously, I don't have any scientific background, so I could never do something like that. But it just it sounds absolutely fascinating. It's so it's so great. It seriously is like a dream come true. You know, as a little Chris, I dreamed about being Mulder. Right. And now I'm kind of like, dude, you're I'm, Mulder. I'm, well, I'm OK. I'm like, I am a fatter Mulder. All right, but I'm Mulder nonetheless. Like, That's all right, man. Dad, dad bods are all the rage, man. You are I'm telling you, you are doing totally great. Golden. You know, you know, it's it's really it's it's been amazing so far, and we're really hoping that you know what in I don't know in two years, in three years, in in five years, I'll be able to look back on this and say you know hey, I I really did something of interest here, and I did something of value to this field. Hopefully, this time next year we'll, we'll be coming on to talk about something cool that we discovered. That would be amazing. We'll see what's so, happening. Where can people find out information about MUFON? Can you share their website? Yeah, absolutely. So you can go to, uh, if you just search uh, MUFON.com, um, you can find our website. You can actually, if you're interested in uh, UFO stuff that's going on right now, you can actually go right on our website. 
Um, right on the top thing, there's a thing that says track UFOs, and you can click on the live UFO map. No, you cannot. You can, and you can Oh my actually... god, it's like Santa Tracker. Yeah, it <laughs> is so just cool. like Santa. It's very much so like Santa Tracker. And you can actually see all of the reports that come into MUFON that day, that year, you know, all the way back if you search hard enough. And um, with photos, with the videos that get submitted to us, long before I became really involved in MUFON, I, I spent many nights on this website scaring myself. You know, like, you know, oh my God, what is that? And then, you know, you Dude, sleep that, with the lights on. That's what I'm going to be doing tonight. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really I'm gonna great. I'm going to be doing after we record. I'm going to be on there looking at shit for hours. <laughs> Seriously, it's it's really fascinating. And we're actually, so MUFON right now actually is, the research team is actually in the process of building up our, our ranks basically of, of interested scientists or experts. And, and you don't have to be just an expert in, in you know, I don't know, biology or DNA analysis or whatever, if you know how to submit a freedom of information request, if you know how to interview witnesses, if you are a social worker, if you're a teacher, you know, all of you um, out there listening to this, if you want to get involved, shoot me an email, directorresearch at mufon.com. That's all one word. And we can see how we can get you helping the helping the cause out. That is so cool. All right. And one last shout out for you and Marie for your show, The Mad Scientist Podcast. Where can everybody find you again? You can find us by uh, all of your favorite podcast apps. We should be there. So that's the Mad Scientist Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Mad Scientist Pod. We're on Instagram as Mad Scientist Podcast. We're on Facebook. We're on we're, we're on everything. Just search Mad Scientist Podcast and uh, go to the one with the jack-o'-lantern. All right. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much, Chris. Oh, no problem. My pleasure. Nothing has been said. No reports given. The area is still roped off. If it was a meteorite, it would have to be of great size for it lit up the entire sky. If it's so big, why aren't there pictures and stories of it? I don't believe it was a meteorite at all, but rather a large spaceship forced the crash land on our planet. So what do you think? Was this strange object that appeared to be molded from liquid metal and shaped like an acorn an unidentified flying object from another planet? Was it a satellite? Was it a missile head? I don't know what happened out there in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania over 50 years ago. I do believe something strange and unusual landed in the woods in rural PA. Something the military was probably tracking, considering it had been seen across two continents and multiple states. I don't think it was a spy satellite, but I don't know what it was. And I like not knowing. I like the possibility that it may have been something we would consider alien. And I really like thinking that it was the Mothman spaceship. Maybe he got scared. He ditched it in the woods. He came back for it a couple of days later and the ship was gone. So we hightailed it to West Virginia. And then that started an entirely different myth and legend. I would like to thank my guests, Bob Gaddy and Chris Cogswell, for helping me with today's episode. I'd also like to thank Sam Culper, Jeremy Collins, host of the podcast We Listen To podcast, David O'Steele, host of A Quest for Magic and Steel and creator of the audio drama Arkham City, and Greg Tilton, co-host of Rumor Flies, for the voice work they provided in today's episode. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.